said they're going to be covering the pulpit, but that's not really true. Um, Ms. Maxine will write the messages, Brother Roger will preach them, I guess, right? That's, that's, that's what you told me, right? Yeah, she, she, she writes them, you preach them, yeah. Yeah, but they'll, uh, remember that there's no, no Wednesday night service this week. Um, after the 4th of July water bottle thing, no Wednesday service, uh, but we'll pick up uh, next Sunday morning just as regular, all right? So keep that in mind. First uh, John chapter 2. First uh, John chapter 2. We're going to look this morning at the, at the love that God hates. Uh, the love that God hates. First uh, John chapter 2, we'll be looking at verses 12 to 17, and we'll just kind of go through it one verse, uh, one verse at a time. Uh, the love that God hates is the love of the world, and there are four reasons why we as believers should not love the world, and, and we're going to go through all four of those. We're going to cover the first one in the introduction itself before we even get to the passage here. Uh, but it's, uh, it's really the love of the world. is, is uh, I mean, we, we should not love the world because of what the world is. Right? The world is, uh, well, we'll see, it's not, it's not kind to God. It's not lined up with God. Uh, look at it this way. There's a story of a group of first graders that had just completed their tour of a hospital, and the nurse who had you know, taken them through the tour asked for questions, and immediately this one little boy's hands just popped right up. And, and he asked, how come the people who work here are always washing their hands? Well, the laughter died down, and then the nurse gave a very wise answer to this question. It says they are always washing their hands uh, for, for two reasons. The first is that they love health. The second is that they hate germs. Uh, now, in more than one area of life, love and hate kind of go hand in hand. I mean, a husband who loves his wife is certainly going to exercise a hatred for the things that would harm her. If you love children and love life, you must hate abortion, uh, Psalm 97.10 says, Ye that love the Lord, hate evil. It says that love be without hypocrisy in Romans 12.9. Abhor that which is evil, cleave to that which is good. Now John reminds his readers in verses 7 through 11 uh, that we're to exercise love for one another, the right kind of love. Now he's going to warn them and warn us that there is a wrong kind of love, the kind of love that God hates. It's, it, it is love for the world. And if you remember from chapter 1, verse 5, down to chapter 2, verse 11, uh, you know, as, as, as John warned his readers of what was going on, they might begin to think that, that John was kind of dissatisfied uh, with their spiritual condition, but that wasn't, wasn't the case. Uh, see, John's assuring them that he is writing what he is writing uh, because of the spiritual assets they have, because of how well they're doing, and he wants that to continue. John wrote precisely because their spiritual condition was good, and he wanted it to stay that way. But he had to warn them that there are dangers which still exist. No matter how far you've come with Christ, no matter how far you've advanced in your Christian walk, there are still dangers. Now the world that we'll hear of, uh, it's, it's, it's Satan's system for opposing the work of Christ on earth. It's a very opposite of what is godly. Uh, 
It's very opposite of what is holy, what is spiritual. Over in chapter 5, verse 19 of 1 John, it says, And we know that uh, we are of God, and the whole world, that world system, lieth in wickedness. Some translations say that the world lies uh, in evil. Some even say lies in the evil one. See, Jesus called Satan the prince of this world in John 12, 31. That Satan has this, this organization of, of evil spirits, uh, demons, fallen angels, and they're working to influence uh, the world uh, for their interests. But uh, even Satan can only go as far as God will allow. Um, like we said in Sunday school, Satan is still really just a dog on a leash. He can only do what God allows him to do. Well, Jesus says in John 15, 18, that if you were of the world, Satan's system there, the world would love his own. But because you're not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. Now, why does the world hate believers? Why does the world hate God and hate God's people? It's because the world is opposed to God. The world is the enemy of God and all that are his. Now, that is, that is why we should not love the world, first of all, because of what the world is. But let's look at verses 12, 13, and 14. And we'll see that we should not love the world because of what a believer is, because of what a Christian is. Verse 12 says, I write unto you, little children, because your sins are forgiven, for you, forgiven you for his name's sake. I write, in, write unto you, fathers, because you have known him that is from the beginning. I write unto you, young men, because ye have overcome the wicked one. I write unto you, little children, because ye have known the Father. I have written unto you, fathers, because ye have known him that is from the beginning. I have written unto you, young men, because ye are strong, and the word of God abideth in you, and ye have overcome the wicked one. Notice in verse 12 that, that first phrase, little children. Uh, little sons would be maybe a little more accurate translation. And, and here he is addressing all of the congregation. He's addressing the fathers, the young men, and the children in this first uh, kind of blanket term of endearment here. So, so, so in that uh, verse 12, little children, he, he is including the fathers and the young men and the children. and says that your sins are forgiven. Okay, think about that. Your, your, your sins have been and they are forgiven. All of God's sons and daughters enjoy this privilege. If you've trusted Jesus Christ as Savior, you enjoy the privilege of having nothing between you and the Father. No penalty for sin. No power for sin. He reminds them, first of all, that they're free. They're out of bondage now. They're free to obey God. They're free to live for God. And he reminds them that they are secure. See, the permanent putting away of sin, verse 12 goes on, for his name's sake. This is, this is special. John pulls something from, from the Old Testament here. The name uh, from the Old Testament, it, it expresses the sum total of the qualities which, which mark the nature and character of a person. It's everything that person is, and in this case, it's the person of God. It refers to all that is true of God and his glory and his majesty and might. And what this means is that they are forgiven of their sins, not necessarily for them, although it does benefit them. They are forgiven 
of their sins for the sake of God's reputation and his glory. See, if God's name is at stake, he is at stake. So John is reminding them that in Christ, they are as secure as God will remain God. Now that is secure. Look at verse 13. I write unto you, fathers, because you have known him that is from the beginning. They, they have this knowledge. It's been gained by experience. These fathers were the older men, the mature in their Christian life. They've, they've lived in fellowship with the Lord Jesus for many, many years. And they have gained much personal knowledge about him by what they've lived. They, they have lived God's faithfulness. Now, now let that sink in. They have lived God's faithfulness. They knew the Father by experience. The trials, the storms, the tragedies, the heartbreaks, the joys, the victories, and the blessings. They know the Father's faithfulness. As the Father was with them through it all. See, the Father, that's appropriate to their age. That's, they're, they're characterized by their knowledge of him. But then the young men, appropriate to their age, uh, they're characterized by, by activity and, and conflict. And it, and it says that, that he writes unto, unto you young men because you have overcome the wicked one. And that word overcome means a permanent victory after the conflict. We, we could word it this way. I am writing to you young men because you have gained the victory over the pernicious one, and as a result, are standing on his neck. You know, the old kings would stand on the necks of those that they conquered, and, and, and I want you to picture this. What a gruesomely beautiful picture of the power that Satan does not have over God's children. If you're waiting for an opportune moment to say amen, that was it, right? Yeah, in case you missed it. See, they, these young men, they, they had fought the fight to the finish and they were enjoying now the fruits of their victory. A life lived in power of the Holy Spirit where their victory over Satan was consistent. They knew how to use the word of God. They knew how to submit to the spirit of God. And they fought their fight to the finish, and, 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 and they were, they weren't coasting, but they knew how to fight, and they had won. See, the Greek has, has two words for, for, for wickedness here. Um, first one is kakos, and it's uh, just evil in the abstract, all right? Uh, the other word is poneros, which is evil in active opposition to good, and and the kakos, man, we all know people like this. It, it means uh, that, that this man is content to perish in their own corruption, but they're just going to mind their own business while doing it. Right? They're, uh, you know, they're, they're no interest in spiritual things. They don't want to get saved. They know they're condemned in their sin, but they're happy with it, but they're going to leave you alone if you leave them alone. All right? But the Poneris man, he, he seeks to drag everybody else down with him to the ultimate destruction, ultimate downfall. And this is, this is what Satan is like. 
Uh, he, is, he is pernicious and he is hateful and he is waiting for his own destruction and he will orchestrate everybody else's destruction too if he can. <clears throat> he can't without God's permission. But and that is what we have here. These young men have overcome Satan's um, proactive evil in their life. Now here uh, in verse 13, we have the little children. This is different than the word up in verse 12. This emphasizes the idea of subordination. Uh, and, and if there's a lack of subordination, then there's discipline. It's kind of a, a more of a word of authority than it is affection. So the term is really not a term of endearment, but it's a type of student. It's, it's little children under instruction. So, so these are people young in the Lord. They've not known Jesus for very long. And they may have a long way to grow, but they do know the Lord. They're in fellowship with the Father. They have met. They know Jesus. They are secure, and they will grow in victory and in their standing with the Lord. And they will get to where they stand on the neck of their enemy, just like the young men are doing and just like the fathers did. Now look at verse 14. It says, I've written unto you fathers because ye have known him that is from the beginning. And again, he writes to the young men because they are strong and the word of God abides in them. And again, they've overcome the wicked one. The word of God must abide in the disciples here, the, the, the adult disciples, the mature Christians. Uh, the word of God is the, is the nutrients for us. It's the, it's the supply of strength for us. It's a weapon that we use to overcome the wicked one. It's the word of God. And yes, it's, 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 it's back to, to what we did in Sunday school as kids. It is memorizing the word of God, hiding God's word in our heart. It's our sword of the spirit. It's, it's what we use to do spiritual battle with the enemy. It equips us to, 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 to step out in the world in conquest to spread the kingdom of God. And when he says that the young men were strong, that's, that's power as an endowment. Now, you need, you need to wrap your head around this. The strength to overcome Satan is included in your salvation. It's not an add-on, okay? If you buy a video game, you know, you can buy add-ons later, you know, and, and if you buy those funky little card games, you know, you can buy add-ons. No, your salvation has no add-ons. You get all you need all at once, the first time, all right? Jesus never does a halfway job. If you're saved, you're saved to the uttermost. You have in the Holy Spirit of God and the Word of God all you need to live for God, to love God, and to obey God. And that's another time for an amen, just, just so you know. All right. The reason these young men could overcome the evil one was because the Word of God abode in them. They did the will of, will of God as it was revealed in his word. And the secret to the young men's strength, it's the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's closed with living power by the spirit of God. And, and, and he abides permanently in him. It's the sword of the spirit again. Wielded in prayerful waiting on and service to God. And we've come across this word abide several times now. It means just to dwell as if you're at home. 
the word of God residing in their hearts unhindered it's it's welcomed it's uh it's comfortable together with the power of the holy spirit gave these young men the victory over satan god's word was at home and comfortable in them welcomed in them and it's no secret but their secret to victory the young men's secret to victory was the word of god abiding living at home and comfortable in them and the third thing why we should not love the world is because what the world does to us look at verse 15 where it says, love not Facebook, neither, no, sorry, that's the wrong, wrong, wrong translation here. Love not Instagram, no, that's the wrong word too. Uh, what, Twitter, um, YouTube, Netflix, hold on, I'll find it in a minute here. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. See, a question confronts us now as to how believers can love the sinful world with a love that is produced in the hearts by the Holy Spirit. And, and uh, the short answer is we, we can't. It's impossible for love to the world to coexist with love to the Father. It's just impossible, like it's impossible for light and darkness to coexist. Worldliness, loving the world, is not so much a matter of activity. It is a matter of activity, but, but, but it's more a matter of attitude. Worldliness, loving the world, not only affects your response to the love of God, but it affects your response to the will of God. Loving God is incompatible with loving the world, the world system. And when it says love not the world, he's, he's, he's speaking of, of, of forbidding a continuous action that's already going on, which means even some of John's readers were still loving the world system that they'd been saved from. John says stop loving the world with a love that's supposed to be pointed at God. Now, the love of the world here, it's, it's, it's not an agape love. Um, it, the Holy Spirit uses a different word. It's a, it's a love that, that, that comes from your heart because um, of the perceived preciousness of the object. Um, that'll make sense here in a minute. This love doesn't seek the welfare of the object that it's loved, but it sees the object of, uh, as important because of what it can do for the person loving it. Um, Demas is said to have loved this present age, and, and he found it precious. It was important to him. He could benefit from it, so he gave it some, some attention. goes on in verse 15, says, uh, Love not the world, neither, or, or not even, the things in the world. See, somebody might deny kind of in general that they love the world while they very intensely follow the things that are in the world. It's riches, it's honor, it's pleasures. And, and, and what this does is it prevents them from escaping conviction. It stops them from trying to get away with loving the world when they say they don't love the world, but they really do love the world. 
this hypothetical person is, is, is someone who, who loves the world as a habit of life. And, and really, he loves the world so much that the love of God is excluded from his life. And because it's a, 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 a habitual thing, this person that is always loving the world is an unsaved person. If in this person the, says that, that the love, love of the Father doesn't exist. Now it means more than that he just does not love God, but, but that the love of God does not dwell in him. As a ruling principle, there, there's just nothing there. God's love is not there. Remember what James 1.27 says, that, that, that a, a truly religious person keeps himself from the world. James 4.4 says that friendship with the world is enmity with God. To be the world's friend, you have to be God's enemy. We've seen 1 John 5.19 that the whole world, the world system, lies in the lap of the wicked one. And, and, and John uses the word as a synonym for darkness. The world See, the command's not, well, just don't love it too much. You can love it a little bit, just not too much. No, no. The, it, it, it says not, not to just love it a little bit or not too much. It says not at all. Love not at all. It has nothing to offer you. The world has nothing to offer God's people but darkness and death. And look at verse 16. For all that is in the world. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. Anything in a Christian's life that causes him to lose his enjoyment of the Father's love or, or his desire to do the Father's will is worldly and needs to be avoided. We have the lust of the flesh, and this is a, a kind of the ethical sense that is used here. It's a, it's meaning the old sin nature, the capacity to do what is evil, um, you know, displeasing to God, that, that, that passionate desire or craving that comes from the sin nature. Um, the world says to your sin nature, you deserve that. You know, yeah, um, you should do it. It's your right. Nobody should tell you what to do. If it feels good, then that's your license to go ahead with it. See, that's not what God says. The lust of the flesh is, is that inordinate desire that comes from the very pit of your sin nature. That's darkness and death. And the lust of the eyes is the passionate craving of the eyes for, for, for satisfaction. The cravings, uh, these lusts of the eyes, again, come from that sin nature. You know, Proverbs says that the eyes are never full. You can never see enough. Right? You see, you see one whale breach, you ought to be done. But what? No, you want to see another one, and another one, and another one. You see, you see one episode of a show, no, you've got to see another one, and another one, and another one. No, the eyes are never full. And, and what is in view here is, is, is the pleasures that gratify the sight and they gratify the mind. There's a sophisticated and intellectual side to the pleasures and these pleasures will rewrite the reward pathways of your brain. You know, in the days of the Apostle John, the Greeks and the Romans, they lived for entertainment and they lived for activities that would excite the eyes. They wanted to see something new. 
They wanted to see something exciting, and it was always something more, something bigger, something better, and times really have not changed much. In view of everything we get on, on, on the internet, on television, on cable, um, yeah, we should turn our eyes away from looking at vanity, it says in Psalm 119. Remember in Joshua chapter 7, there's a fellow named Achan. Uh, he was a soldier that uh, brought the defeat of Joshua's army because of his lust of the eyes. God had warned Israel after they took Jericho um, not to take any of the spoils of the city. And that was the custom. If you, if you took a city, uh, you were kind of paid with the spoils. Of, you know, people's houses you could ransack, take the riches and stuff. But God says, no, you don't touch anything in Jericho. Well, Achan did. He says in chapter 7, verse 21 of Joshua, When I saw among the spoils a goodly Babylonian garment, the 200 shekels of silver, I coveted them and took them. See, the lust of the eyes led him into sin, and his sin then led to the defeat of God's army. He saw them, he contemplated them, he thought about them, until he convinced himself he deserved them until he convinced himself it was right for him to take them, even though God had expressly said no, because he saw them, he took them, and he had to watch his family die before he died as a result. Then there's the pride of life. It's that insolent, vain assurance of your own resources. It's the stability of your earthly things, which comes from a contempt of God's law. And it's like the man who, who, who tore down his barns to build bigger ones, and then God killed him before he could do that. The pride of life is that ostentatious pride in the possession of worldly goods, that insolent and empty uh, assurance of the trust in their own power and resources. You think that because I have my things, I'm going to be okay. It despises God's law, and it will walk over any person that gets in the way. It's the accumulation of, the accumulation of and trust in stuff for your security. See, this person wants to gather as many toys as he can, and he's convinced that his toys will be his salvation. The stuff gives him status. His stuff gives him standing. He thinks he's important and powerful because of the possessions he owns. And again, that is more darkness and it's more death. You know, these same three things, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life. We see these in Matthew 13, Mark 4, with the parable of the four soils. Where three of them, um, the wayside hearers, that was the devil, the thorns, that's the world, the rocky undersoil, that's the flesh. We can kind of call this the world's anti-trinity. You know, even uh, when Satan tempted Eve, he used these same three things. As when she saw that the tree was good for food, pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise. So you can see how the world operates, how it tries to get its hooks in you and to pull you down. It appeals to normal appetites and tempts you to fulfill them in forbidden ways. The reason love for the world is incompatible uh, with, 
with love for God is that everything that is in the world does not come from God. Everything that is in the world is not of God. This world-conceived system is a system of values and goals that, that leaves God out. See, the world is anti-God. What is, what is in the world is anti-God. What you get from the world is anti-God. And John says, do not love the world. It has nothing to offer you. And verse 17 gives us the fourth reason why we should not love the world. It's because of where the world's going. Look at what it says. And the world passeth away, and the lust thereof. But he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. The world right now and all that lust, all the inordinate affections of the eyes and the flesh and the mind, they are passing away right now. They're on their way out. Uh, it's, it's, It's all temporary. Why would you put value uh, and worth into something that is not going to last? So how do you you not pass away with it? Look what verse 17 says. But he that doeth the will of God, not not saith, not loveth, but, but doeth. Doing the will of God is a joy for those who are living in the love of God. Remember Jesus said, if you love me, you keep my commandments. Doing God's will is possible because you are already in fellowship with God. He is already your heavenly father. You've already been saved from your sins by placing your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. If you have indeed trusted Jesus to save you. Doing the will of God. It's the opposite of all that's in the world. I mean, it's, it's light and darkness. It's love and hate. It's truth and error, right and wrong. God in the world, doing the will of God, motivated from the love for God, it, 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 it proves the possession of eternal life. And if you have eternal life, you're going to abide with God forever. And we have that word abideth again. It's one of John's favorite words means that you're going to be at home and comfortable with God the Father forever. Forever. It's never going to end. And, and, and really, in that we see why God hates it when somebody loves the world. It's because their love for the world separates them from him. And that's why he just hates it so badly. Because that's one more person that is not in fellowship with the Father. Love for the world is a love that God hates. It's the love that a Christian must shun at all costs. Loving the world, all right, for a believer to be loving the world. It's like knowingly drinking poison because you don't want to hurt the feelings of the person that gave you the poison. Sounds ridiculous, doesn't it? That's how ridiculous it is for a believer to love the world. Loving the world is walking in darkness on purpose, wanting to fall headlong to destruction. See, for the believer, this world is not your home. If you know Jesus is Savior, this this isn't your place. 
The world hates you because it hates Jesus. And while we have to be in the world, we have to interact with the world, we are not of this world. So what do we do? Where are we left? Well, we have a God, a heavenly Father who, 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 who does love you and, and he desires for, for your benefit, not, not for his benefit, but, but he desires for your benefit fellowship with you. He wants fellowship with you because it's the best thing for you. And once you have that fellowship established, you're going to dwell with him for all of eternity. This world is on its way out. With the Father, you will abide forever. You will outlast the world. Let that sink in. You will outlast your house, your car, your boat, your plane, your four-wheeler, your library, uh, your fishing gear, your clothes. You're going to outlast everything if you're in fellowship with the Father. But it's only by doing the will of the Father because you have already have fellowship with him because you've already trusted Jesus to save you. Everything the world has to offer is at odds with the Father, will take you from the Father. If, if you know Jesus is Savior, I mean, you're not going to lose your salvation, but, but it's going to hurt that relationship. And he's going to have to spank you to bring you back into fellowship with him. If you can go out into the world, Scripture says, and you can love the world, you can be part of the world, uh, you can love all that the world has to offer, and, and, and the Father never try to correct you to bring you back, uh, there's no saying God only spanks his own kids. If you can be comfortable in the world and God never convict you or try to bring you back into fellowship, it's because you were never his to begin with. But for the Christian who gets a little worldly, God's going to spank you because he loves you. He loves you more than you can comprehend. And he is highly motivated to bring his children back into fellowship with him. He hates love for the world because it separates people from him. Do not love the world. Love your Jesus. Love your heavenly father. Do what he commands you to do. Stay in fellowship with him. That is the best that God has for you. Stand with your heads bowed and eyes closed. Father, we come to you this morning. We want to thank you for all that you have done, all that was involved in providing for us uh, salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. I want to thank you for your willing sacrifice of your son. I want to thank you for him laying down his life as that sacrifice for us. The payment for sin, the propitiation for your wrath. And Father, I pray for those here this morning that do not know Christ as Savior. That Lord, you would convict them of their sin. That you would, Father, as only your Holy Spirit can, convince them that they are utterly hopeless without Jesus Christ. 
And I pray, Father, that you would draw them to yourself, that you would so work in them until Christ be formed in them, and that, Father, if necessary, you will make them so utterly miserable in their sin that they cannot bear another moment without falling to the feet of Jesus to be saved. Lord, for us believers that are here that have uh, maybe gotten a little too friendly with the world system, we've kind of excused our sin because we don't think we're hurting anybody. That we've thought we could, we could love you and love the world too. Lord, I pray that your spirit would, would convict us of that sin. That we confess it and forsake it and come back in fellowship with you. Lord, we pray all this to your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Keith, would you come ahead?